is going to run. Sandos, Mike Gallagher, another edition of Sandos in the Sidekick. We'll be recapping the weekend ETSU basketball on the men's side. Obviously, ETSU women hopefully back in action this Saturday as they take on the arch nemesis, the Chattanooga Mocs. We'll also be talking as we do the whip around the Southern Conference breakdown. There's no excuse for us to play the breakdown bumper. And then uh, fell down. Certainly not the resolution, right? We're over that when that resolution thing's done. Well, we can go back over a couple of them if you'd like. I just don't want to hear the bumper again. Or do we want to hear the bumper again? Uh, oh, the bumper. Oh, well. I, mean, I just really want the bumper more than yeah, I want the resolution. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We did have a resolution for uh, one of the resolutions for ETSU football is we should update uh, Donovan Manuel. Yep, not, international. not, not to. Yeah, you start to celebrate, and then you realize where I was going with it. Yeah, like, Wait a second, this is, this is I, I, well, I thought it was good for a second. Yeah, no, it's not, unfortunately. And, uh, yeah. Florida National, the powerhouse of Butch Davis. One in 11, I think, last year. He doesn't even want to be there himself and talks about how they have to borrow equipment and shoulder pads and then have their own senses. Just, okay. Certainly wish Donovan the best. Yeah, I wish he would have stayed, though, yeah, because I think there were greener uh, pastures here. I mean, certainly maybe the warmth of South Beach was was calling him or something. That does sound uh, nice, to be honest. So uh, it's, it's uh, very very chilly here. Uh, my winter coat inside. I are we going to do a uh, bold prediction recap? Yes, we are. Yes. yes, we are. Yes, we are. Guess we got another dub. I just can't figure Guess it out. Got, I can't, honestly. <laughs> I, I'm beyond words at this point. Okay. All right. Well, let's start with uh, uh, the weekend uh, Wofford game. It happened. It was over. Um and now we're on to Western, so there you go. Let's see, would you like to add anything to that? You have uh, learned from Bill Belichick very well. You are a Patriots fan, and you are channeling him. Well done. Okay, so uh, we're on to Western. Western, last night, I thought an outstanding overall performance. We knew Western would have trouble guarding people, and that's exactly what happened. And ETSU really had their way offensively. Jordan King, certainly where he struggled the previous contest against Wofford, took out some frustrations on Western Carolina to the, to the tune of his first collegiate dunk of his career. And so he got a flush, but he finished uh, 9 of 13, 5 of 9 from beyond the arc, 23 points career high, a double-double uh, for David Sloan, who I thought was terrific, a bounce-back game for him. Really about, I mean, even though he had 24, he had seven turnovers, very un-Sloan-like numbers in the previous contest. Uh, not the scoring, because I thought he was efficient in 10 of 14, but seven turnovers, obviously not good. The Darius Brewer was averaging about 14 points um, his last nine, and he scores. Uh, he only scored seven, but I thought he did a great job of kind of hitting, a, I think, hit the first three of the game, got a couple of buckets going, and then uh, tried to be a little too unselfish. Ty Brewer, 14 points. Jaden Seymour in double figures. I mean, the game got going so well that Matt Nunez got a slam cutting down the lane in the Jaden Seymour alley. The first one was pretty good. The second one was flat-out athletically ridiculous. I thought there was no way that he was going to catch the pass from Mohab Yasser on that one who finished with 11 points. But when he, he flushed that one, not that I didn't think it would be ETSU's game, but I thought it would be ETSU's game. And then I thought they learned because up 17 against VMI, and granted VMI is better than Western, but up 17 against both. ETSU was able to get the lead to 29, and I know Western made a you know, 16-2, 14-2 run to, to make it a little closer, but at that point it was too little, too late, and ETSU cruised to victory. There's a lot to unpack from this game. I think specifically on Western Carolina's side, but in terms of ETSU, they were really good where they hadn't been over the last couple of games. I can't count the amount of lob passes that were just all over the place. Uh, even the first one, I suppose, last night, but then you started seeing guys connect. And Jaden Seymour, you're absolutely right. That second one, he had to reach a ways to get it and somehow still threw it down. And 
Yeah, Jordan King, the athleticism. I, I didn't think it was possible, quite honestly, and I'm not sure anyone around college basketball that had seen him play would have thought so, because as you said, first collegiate dunk. <laughs> you know, like maybe in practice, if you had really been with Jordan for a long time at Siena, at ETSU, and he, you know, gets up a time here and there, uh, you know, in warm-ups, or you're able to see a little glimpse of it, but you've never been able to see any of it during a game, so I thought that was very impressive. Twitter agreed. Uh, they loved it for the young man, and when he's on, and you ask the question post-game, I mean, you and Bruce Schrambarger on uh, the Buccaneer Sports Network, what can be done to stop a quick first step, right? Obviously, the ability to finish at the rim, as you saw in the fast break on that dunk, and then range out to the logo. Um, he's obviously going to live more in that world, you know, 22, 23 feet and out. But to see him finish up top was uh, quite mesmerizing, honestly. Um, Ladarius Brewer was good early, and then you heard – Coach Oliver say post game he what he thought happened is Ladarius is trying to be a good teammate right and maybe even to a fault a little bit where he'll draw a couple of guys and get in good positions but he's kicking the ball a lot he's passing he's setting up teammates and that's what a good leader does it's what someone that is good at making their teammates better does it's what some of the very best do um, I do think it's tough for Ladarius to find that balance right now. Because for the longest time, I don't think he has necessarily played with that mindset, right? He's been kind of in attack mode. I'm the best player on the court. I can score the ball at will, and that's true a lot of days. Um, But it seems like he has matured, if you want to say, that perspective a little bit, where he looks around and says, my brother can get it done on many days. Jordan King is a great shooter. David Sloan is a great shooter. So if I drive to the middle of the paint, if I get going inside and I draw other defenders, that's going to leave somebody open. And especially if it's David Sloan or Jordan King, i got to find I thought it was interesting, Coach's comments, and I thought Coach simplified it in, in a very good way. You know, if you're being guarded by four guys against one of the top teams in the league, you probably need to pass the ball. But if you're one-on-one with anybody, go ahead and score it. And I thought, that's simple enough, right? You can, you can break that down. If it's one-on-one, we have enough confidence in you to go score, and you should have enough confidence for you to go score. If you're being double, triple teamed, probably got somebody open you need to trust a teammate. So I think if you keep it as simple as that, and yes, they probably wanted to work with him on passing and getting guys involved, and you could tell, especially late, he had a bad turnover where like he could have had a layup and he was trying to get it to his brother, and it ended up being a turnover and the one the other way. And it felt like at that point, like, yeah, something was a little off. And when Coke said after the game, it kind of broke it down for us. And I thought, okay, now that, that makes sense to me that, he was consciously trying to not be selfish, but there were times when clearly he could have scored a, a basket or, or attempted to shoot or attempted to score. I guess not everything's given, but um, I thought it was interesting to see how the, the style of game that he played. But he did you limited, really went with eight players. Um, I know Nunez and uh, got in late, but really tried to rotate eight guys. And Nunez really only got in when Charlie Weber fouled out. But – ETSU was all over the place. When they're out in transition, they're as good as anybody. And that, that sort of – the defense creates offense. The lone knock, I think you could say, about last night's performance was, again, you gave up a ton of offensive rebounds. But other than that, it looked like a complete game. And right now you're getting an every other ETSU team. And some of that is by the teams you're playing and the style that you're playing. Georgia wanted to get up and down the floor, so ETSU got up and down the floor. Chattanooga wanted to suffocate you in defense, and then ETSU got suffocated and then got physically manhandled inside. Then VMI wants to get up down the floor. ETSU got up down the floor with them. Wofford again, we know how Wofford plays. A little suffocating, tough man, don't want to let anybody inside. Very physical game. Bucks got out physical inside. And then a team got up and down. So, you know, now you're going to play Furman, who's going to try to play physical on you, and then you want Sanford up and down. So I don't know. This could be in every other game situation until they figure out how to play the physical teams. I think they they get teams that want to play similar than them. They've been more than dominant at times, even against Georgia and some other teams. I think it's the other style of game they're going to have to try to figure out because they're not particularly depth, deep inside, and particularly they don't have a lot of strength inside. I think the one other thing that I'd throw in is the turnovers, and there are 14 of them, which is too many, a lot of them kind of unforced, right? like just trying to do too much, not being on the same page. There weren't a lot of turnovers that I looked at and said, wow, Western Carolina made a great play on the ball, and there's not a lot 
can be done there, just give them credit. Uh, a lot of it, I thought, was semi-unforced and um, just confusing because when, as you said, ETSU is rolling offensively, you can pit them against pretty much any other team in the league. And when they're doing some of the stuff that they've done in, like, say, the USC Upstate game, right, or the Chattanooga game, uh, the Wofford game, y- you just aren't sure what team took the court that day. And so it has kind of unfolded into that every other uh, at the moment, and, and certainly Furman's going to be a difficult opponent. On Western Carolina, they're just not going to be very good this year. And I think we kind of knew that coming in. And they, as I said on our last show or two shows ago or whenever it was, I was actually pretty impressed with the job that Justin Gray had done to get the win over Bowling Green and win six non-conference games and even get the Citadel win where it put up 94 points. I don't know how in the world that team scored 94 points on anyone. How I big of a loss <laughs> is, is McCray that big of a loss? Is that well, the only thing? That's the only thing I tried to McCray, talk about last night. But McCray didn't play that game. He was gone after the Georgia game. And so you look at the Citadel game, you're like, is the Citadel just going to give up 90 to everybody? Right? I do think McCray is – a big loss. I talked about it as well. You know, second leading scorer, one of their four returners, now it's down to three returners. Seemed like being there as long as he had been a bit of a glue guy, right? Like, kind of a nucleus piece. So, I do think that that could be the case, but without him scoring 94, I don't know how they did it, because a lot of the shots that Western missed last night, some were contested. There's no doubt. I didn't think there were as many open looks as the VMI game. Uh, and VMI didn't hit a lot of theirs either, but I thought the Bucks did mostly a good job contesting. When they contested, shots were wildly off target. When they didn't, there were still a lot of misses. Um, and it's tough with a team that takes 41 threes, right? And that's not that dissimilar from what they do on a game-by-game basis. It's like 34-35. So it's tough day-to-day seeing it just one day from Western because the next game they could go out and make, you know, 17 or 18, and it looks like a whole different squad as they did against the Citadel. But it just didn't strike me as a team without McCray that has a lot of talent, quite honestly, which I was kind of surprised about because Robinson, Wolverine, uh, even Petrakis, uh, a lot of their transfers, Marcus Banks, the freshman, you know, none of them looked great to me in terms of being able to hold up on a game-by-game basis. And I was surprised at that because Robinson's been really good. Wolverine had his best night. Petrakis has been up and down um, and certainly didn't have a good night last evening. And Marcus Banks, you know, freshman, you're going to have um, your good nights and your bad nights in your first year as well. But, um, yeah, no, I, I just didn't enjoy watching Western play last night. Uh, it wasn't good. Uh, it didn't give me a lot of hope for the rest of their year. When Robinson called the last time out. Oh, wait, for fans that may not okay. know the story, so, please. So the last, under, the, under four minutes to go in a game, Ladarius Brewer threw a full-court pass to Ty Brewer in which nobody was interested in getting back and stopping, and Ty Brewer got a slam. And Robinson calls a timeout. And clearly, Justin Gray's upset. He's like, who, who, what's happening? Who called timeout? What, what, what is it? And he said, uh, the player called timeout. He said, which one? And Robinson says, I called a timeout, Coach. He goes, why'd you do that? He goes, well, I'm tired. That's all I heard was I'm tired. And I'm thinking, well, that is very weird that a guy called a timeout. He's like, you know what, Coach, I've had enough. I need a break. I'm calling a timeout. Well, then, Kevin Brown, who's running down the, the stats for us, I was like, Kevin, did you – the exchange, he goes, yes, he said. <laughs> Coach asked Robinson why he called timeout. He said, he's tired. And he says, you're tired? She called timeout. No, I'm tired of the guys not getting back on defense, Coach. We're not playing hard. Like, we need a timeout. Like, we gotta we got to talk about this. Like, like I mean, we may be getting beat, but we're going to play hard. We're going to hustle. And I love that. I love that one of the players. Now, in the same token, Coach Gray's looking at the scoreboard going – Son, we just want the clock to run out. Like right. we, we don't want to. Like I get what you're saying, but but you know, it, it's one of those I can appreciate. Like I don't think Coach, when he found out the reasoning why was at first, I think he was upset. Then he heard the reasoning and thought, well, my guy's trying to be a leader. And at first, I thought it was odd too. And the more I thought about it, I was like, okay, well, you know, yes, he's competing to the last whistle. Win, lose, draw. He's trying to – Robinson himself is trying to tell and – sure. and the rest of the team, culture-wise, it's unacceptable. We're going to play the final whistle. We're not going to – there's no excuse for us to not get back on a made shot that they throw a full length of the court and nobody's there to make a play. Like, somebody's got to be there. You cannot allow that. And, and I'll say that about Wilbright and Robinson. You know, Wilbright led by example last night, and while I don't think that his – game is going to translate to night in, night out, averaging, you know, 16, 17 points. I, I think on a good team, he could be a really
solid three or four. Uh, so he led by example last night. Robinson, as you said, seems like he has his head on his shoulders where, and as he should, right, a grad transfer, um, someone that has led them in pretty much everything this year. He's trying to be a leader, trying to change some of that culture, but I was more concerned with some of the role players. Like, you look at the stats and you think, you know, Marvin Price and Baycoat and Massey, who got in sparingly. Of all of the subs last night, quite honestly, the guy I liked the most was Madison Monroe, who plays the least. I mean, he came in and competed and was scrapping on the glass and was able to get, uh, you know, five points and three rebounds out of the deal in 11 minutes. Um, but, you know, Tyler Harris, like, he's not really known as sh- a shooter, but he made two threes, and that was really all he contributed. That was a guy I was going to touch on because I expected more out of him this season. Same. And sort of the style of game he can bring, but yeah. he just, whatever happened, and again, I've watched sparingly Western Carolina besides last night, because I kind of skipped through, you know, football, we play once a week and some stuff, I mean, I can I can kind of zip through a lot of the games and, and watch on basketball, there's just a pure number, plus early in the season, there's football cross, so I, I watch stretches of certain games I want to see, and I've just, from what I've seen of Harris, and again, I'm not seeing every second of every game, but I thought he would be better. I thought he'd be contributing more. I thought they could count on him, and I feel like they cannot count on him right now, night in and night out. I thought the same thing about Monroe. He came in, and he just, you know, he, he went at it, yeah. and, it, and I appreciated that. But I just feel like without McCray, you know, I feel like Woolbright. Robinson, Harris, McCray, you're looking at those four and you're going, okay, that, I th- that's what I looked at the roster. I thought, okay, maybe you got something. And then looking at some of the scores and some of their scoring early. And then you lose McCray, I'm like, okay, well, Robinson is who he is. I think he played up to his standard. Yes, he missed some shots, but, you know, he got some volume shots up and got to about his average. 16 right? steal, sure, yeah, quality. You know, so, Woolbright, career high, sure. did, did some things. But, yeah, I, I think if they're going to make any step forward and – and be better. I think Harris has to be one of the guys that, that steps up. There are other three starters, two for 21 from the floor. I mean, it's clear that you miss McCray and that those guys are just not people you can count on every single game. And, look, you have to have some sympathy for him a bit because already it was a darn near impossible task coming in. First-year head coach, 12 newcomers. Like, ETSU was in the situation last year, matter of fact. And now, while there were good times and bad times, you know, finished middle of the league, I still thought – that that was success. I still will always look back on that 2020-21 year, and yes, I know it unfolded in a weird way, and there was a lot of stuff that you couldn't have foreseen, but if you told me before the year, not to belabor the point, but 13-12 and in middle of the league finish, I think that's success simply because you had, what, the second most newcomers in the country, second fewest letter winners. Well, Western Carolina, numbers-wise, is pretty much in that exact same situation with a first-year head coach that has two years of coaching experience in his life as an assistant. So it was already a monumental task, and then you lose McCray. And so I'm not sure it's fair to judge them on the same scale, and we're going to because it's the SOCON, and there's ten teams, and it's league play, and you, you have to. You just have to because that's the situation we're in. We're comparing like-to-like like during conference play. But I'm not sure it's fair to simply because of the odds that have been stacked against them and the odds that continue to mount against Western. Um, it's going to be a long season, and it's unfortunate for them, but also I think a little bit for ETSU while it was a nice win. I'm not sure that that game is going to be representative of a lot of other ones that you play in the league. Like, I'm not sure I've seen so many rebound and then outlet pass gets you instantly to a three-on-one or a two-on-nothing or a home run pass over the top 60 feet and you have a layup at the rim like, it was impressive, but it also made it so the Bucks really didn't have to work on their half-court offense, which I think is something that, as you can see from you know some of these games where the Bucks have not scored 60 or more, uh, needs some work. So it was a nice win. It was what you expected. It's the 14th in a row, 31st out of the last 32. I hope it's a confidence bo- booster, but I also hope that everybody stays within themselves and says, okay, look, that was great, but we still have these things we got to work on because we got a really good team coming up. I mean, when you look at the schedule and you start putting wins and losses on the board, does anybody not stop at Western and just roll through it without thinking and put a W down right. because that's just what it is, right? It's just about matchups, and no matter what, it, you know, Death Taxes beat Western. It just seems to be the thing that happens. So 
I, I thought it was a way to get, you know, it's the weird middle-of-the-season get-right game that, that, that you don't really get. Or, or maybe once a year you, you can get a game where everything goes and everybody's feeling good about it and you rattle it off. I hate that it happened on, you know, a, a Monday against Western Carolina where the national championship game was taking place as opposed to Saturday in front of a better crowd and a, and a win against Wofford. And again, you're going to take the win against Western because, you know, it's going to get you to two, you know, two and two, 500 in the league. And we'll talk more about the rest of the league and where that puts them here in just a few seconds. But, you know, I, not overstating, this wasn't a defining win that's going to set the tone for the season and what it is. What's going to set the tone for the season if ETSU goes to Furman and wins? No doubt. That's going to be a tone setter coming off the Western Carolina win. You know, again, if you're putting your pencil win-loss down there and you're going logically, you're going on past history, you're going, okay, the Furman game, even with the teams that are really, really good, ETSU has not won there. So, you know, chances are you're probably not going to win there. But then how do you play? Last year, remember, no Ladarius Brewer, and that was a one of the tightest games they've had in that building, except for the time that they won on the – I think DeSante Bradford go-ahead bucket. So, that being said, it wasn't a win that, that makes everybody, you know, just sit there and go, okay, now we turn the corner, we're going to rattle off ten in a row. But certainly it was a win where you should beat Western Carolina handily, and they accomplished the feat by beating Western Carolina handily. Now they've got a couple days to prepare for Furman and only playing the eight guys. And, and you know, that bench keeps shrinking because guys are, you know, there have been a couple people in protocol. There's been a couple people injured. A few different. There's a couple reasons why there's been a guy quit. So, what was going to be a nine ten man rotation may eventually get back to nine, maybe even ten if Nunez continues to play. But certainly, playing all these games in a short period of time, we'll see how the legs go because you're going to get Furman and their style. But even more importantly, you're going to have a couple of days and go down to Sanford where they're just going to press you for you know the full forty minutes. So. I think that's something to keep an eye on, too, to see what happens in the minutes, what happens uh, down at Furman. Of course, that'll be 7 o'clock, 6.30 airtime, and I think we'll know more about ETSU basketball team. But honestly, it's one of those where it shouldn't be an overreact. ETSU, if you lose at Furman, well, you've only beaten them once to rejoin Southern Conference, and that, that includes some pretty daggone good basketball teams, including a couple went to NCAA tournaments, right? So, Or would have went to a second tournament or qualified for a tournament, however you want to word that in the COVID year, the 30-4 and four year. But still... It'll be curious to see sort of how uh, that breaks down, and I think we'll have a better maybe conversation on Thursday on where we think everything is for ETSU men's basketball. Can't wait. All right, let's uh, do a, what, what are we calling it? The breakdown, the breakdown of the Southern Conference, the whip around of the Southern Conference men's basketball standings and the teams. After this timeout, Sando Sakik on the Buccaneers Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky. But for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee Lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you play. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. Chuck, what I wasn't ready for. New Year's resolutions for each of these teams. I'm sure they all had some coming in. One through ten in the Southern Conference in semi-particular order, to be honest, before the games last night. I jotted down most of this, so it's not going to be the exact standings, but we'll fill in the blanks. Chattanooga at the top. Uh, I mean, pretty much steamrolling their way through everybody right now, at least so far. Silvio DeSosa. Missed a game because of COVID, but they still managed without him against Wofford. Then he returned against the Citadel, helped the box flatten the Bulldogs. They've got a big showdown coming up Saturday against Furman, a game I'm very excited for. I'm very excited to see how both those teams handle it. Right now, no doubt, cream of the crop. It runs through Chattanooga. If anybody, I, it's one of those where 
I think if, if Chad gets through the first nine games, the first rotation through unscathed, I think it's going to be very difficult. I could see them going 16-2, and two, something to that respect if people don't figure out. They just got too many things going for them. And I think every team besides Chattanooga, I can give you a big question mark on something about the team. But for Chattanooga, if I had to pick a question mark, would it be did three guys miss a game? I, I don't know. I, I don't really have a – they can shoot the basketball. They can play inside with the Sosa. They can rebound. They can run. They can turn people over. Got experience. They can shoot free throws. They have experience. They've – they are sharing the basketball about as good as anybody. I mean, there's really, you look at a lot of the numbers offensively. It's very difficult to find right this second. Oh, and now basketball can change. You can go in lulls and things happen. And, yes, you could catch a, a team where it's one of those nights and everybody's not hitting. But I think 16-2 and two right now is looking pretty good for Chattanooga. But Saturday will be a big test when they take on the Palace. I hate to use one of the – buzz terms that people do when it comes to great teams, a team of destiny, right? That's what people want to say. You look at the last three Southern Conference champions, Wofford, with Fletcher McGee, obviously the undefeated season, ETSU the 30-4 and four year, a couple of history-making years for those teams, and then last year with Isaiah Miller and Wes Miller, it was their last year together, and that kind of felt like one of those team of destiny type things as well. Those three years, do you think looking at this season so far that there could be a fourth consecutive quote-unquote team of destiny where Chattanooga, you just look at every reason that you just said, they fit into that mold. I mean, they, they are eer, eerily similar to the 97 team, which went to the Sweet 16 with Johnny Taylor and those guys. And a matter of fact, I think his son is a freshman redshirting on the Chattanooga team, Johnny Taylor Jr. So uh, maybe even fitting that that happens. But right now, uh, yes, I think they, they have the makings of having a special run in Luke Perry. Furman may be the team that can stand in their way. Again, they're meeting Saturday. The Paladins' only loss of the league in four games this season was against VMI up in Lexington. They won an ugly one against UNCG. Look back to their normal selves offensively against Mercer in an 81-66 win. ETSU has to go there tomorrow. Of course, Alex Hunter, Mike Bothwell, Jalen Slauson, Conley Garrison. They've been out there tons all playing 32 minutes per game or more. The one variance for them right now from, I think, a normal year where they've got their five solidified is that fifth spot. Marcus Foster and Garrett Keene have alternated starting duties there. But there is one similarity, and at least in that top four, it is very top-heavy. Yeah, they still the, – the the guy that started more is Heen. The five that started the most, the four-plus Heen, if you will, have all taken – 100 shots or more. Everyone else is in the 50s or whatever, even Foster started. So those five, instead of the 90% of the scoring, the rebounding, the assist, all the categories you can come up with are with the starters, it's now 80-some percent. But I think some of that is because I'm counting Foster as a reserve. But if you really added Foster and just said the top six guys instead of the top five, you're at 94-plus percent on about all of that. So they're still exactly where they want to be. Slauson is maybe the greatest story in the league right now. His numbers are incredible. Somebody sent them to me with a guess whose numbers these are. And going into yesterday, he was top ten in scoring, rebounding, field goal percentage, free throw percentage, assists, assist-to-turnover ratio, Number one in steals, third in block shots. And I read all of that and didn't tell you it's Jalen Slauson. Most people listening to the, even maybe some Furman fans listening to the broadcast would guess other people before they got to Slauson. And most people guessed Mike Bothwell and Alex Hunter before they got to Slauson, even when I told them the team was Furman, and that included my guesses. So and me too. <laughs> it's an impressive turnaround for Slauson. He has turned into a major piece to the puzzle for the Furman Paladins. Again, they'll be up there in the top three or four as they always are. The biggest question is, as you know, Mike, I will say this until they prove me wrong, when they get to the tournament, will they be able to survive with the legs that are so worn out? So Chattanooga 3-0, and Furman 3-1, and UNCG improved to 2-1 and last night. Maybe the most surprising team of the league so far to me, just to see what they're going to do. Everyone wants to shoot a million threes and play fast, and UNCG doesn't seem to care. Going into last night, they allowed 58 to Furman, 
56 to VMI, two of the most prolific offensive teams in the league. Then against Wofford, they allowed just 54 in a four-point win last night. They're only taking 19 threes per game, really small number comparatively to the rest of the league. Do you think they can be an issue for teams simply because they are so contrarian in style to a lot of the SoCon teams right now? You know, they did what Wofford did to ETSU, points off turnovers. They were 27-9, to but they really pride themselves on defense, mucking it up, and just keeping the game in the 60s or 50s. And if it's in the 50s, you look at overall this year, they've won more games than most teams do with only scoring in the 50s. And it's incredible what they were able to do, I, I think, against the, the Terriers. Now, Safford was in trouble the whole game and fouled out and never really got going. I think he just took two shots in that. But I think they're going to be dangerous if they can continue to keep teams under 60 and keeping it sort of a knife or rock fight, you know, just making it one of those ugly games. And then they've proven that they can win those tight 50-plus games where most teams aren't used to that except for Wofford, which was a nice surprise because they were down. I think I looked at one point 11, and it may have been more than that, but when I started paying attention to it with about 10 minutes to go in the game, it was about a, a 9, 11-point lead somewhere in there, and then they just kept chipping away, and all of a sudden, you know, I looked at about a minute and a half, and they were up four, and was able to hold on to a four-point win. So, you know, there's two surprises, I think, in the league, and are both in that game. The fact that UNCG has played as well as they have with, so much turnover, a completely different system with some of the pieces that they had, like the Langley brothers and such, and Abdul Salam, Basilitis. So they've still got a bunch of holdovers where other teams have had massive transition. And then Wofford, even beating ETSU, falls to now one and three. And I think those are my two biggest surprises. UNCG may be better than what I thought they would be right now, and again, it's early. And then Wofford struggling to find wins. VMI looked like they'd be a surprise early on. They won their first two league games. We're going for their first 3-0 and start since 1976-77 in the Southern Conference. And overall, they had won 6-7 of seven and have now lost their last two. A close one at Freedom Hall to the Bucks, And then what I think looks like the bad loss of the early season until you consider that UNCG has been a surprise, but still getting manhandled like they did at home by UNCG, 72-56. to 56. And I got to tell you, I thought this after we saw them at Freedom Hall and then continuing to look at them as we go through box scores and kind of breaking down the numbers a little bit more. Outside of Jake Stevens and Camden Kerfman, I have some real concerns offensively for them. And maybe it's just because Sean Conway's had an off couple of games. He's been their number three scorer. But Trey Bonham has been really, really streaky. Honor Huff is just a freshman. He's going to come and go. Uh, I'm just not sure that they have a third guy that if Stevens or Kerfman happen to not put up 25 that night, they can make up the difference. I, I, they're going to be one of those teams when because they'll have nights where they hit. They'll, they'll put up you know, 1923s because they got guys that are going to hit at the same time, and that's going to lead them to victories. I guess the question we need to ask, are they going to be able to maintain that on those off nights and able to pick up a win? And so far, they've not, and I think the UNCG is a perfect example of that, which, again, let's talk about how impressive UNCG held VMI to 56 points on their own floor. So I, I think trending up is UNCG. I think VMI is going to be middle of the pack, Sixth, fifth, sixth, seventh, somewhere in there because of the shooting nights that will come and will drop for them, but they're going to have plenty of nights where it's not going to work out for them, and teams are going to be able to put the clamps on other people, and those two guys aren't good enough to carry it by themselves. They need a third, fourth guy to score. And we should say that fifth, sixth, seventh, still pretty successful in terms of just the grand scheme of recent history for VMI and the struggles that Dan Earl had had and has had on the road until really last season when they started to put some things together, but still on the road really struggled until they figure out things on the road. It's just not going to be uh, any good. But, yeah, third scoring option is is huge. Uh, okay, so three 500 teams in the league right now. We already talked about ETSU. If you want to hear about that, there's 20 minutes of it. Just rewind a little bit. Uh, VMI also 2-2. Two two. Mercer is one and one, and for me, as we've harped on over and over, it's all about Neftali Alvarez, that lower leg injury that has left him on crutches and in a wrap, leaving Sean Walker Jr. to play a lot of point with Alvarez out. Quite honestly, he's done pretty well, especially recently, back-to-back double-digit scoring games, 6'6", 200 pounds out of Tallahassee Community College. Uh, originally started his career at George Washington, so 
He's someone that was highly thought of coming out of high school. But at this point, they're probably going to go, unless Alvarez has this miracle turnaround recovery where he's off crutches, uh, not wrapped on that uh, lower leg anymore, and can come back and play meaningful minutes before March to get his feet back under him again and then really start to roll in the postseason. I believe that it's going to be as far as Felipe Hase takes them. They will go. He's their leader in three-point percentage, free-throw percentage, rebounding, assists, steals, and blocks. A bit of a Jalen Slauson type for Mercer. The, fir- the next two games are going to be huge. they got VMI at home Thursday and then UNCG at home Saturday. And those could very easily, two wins, get them to three and one, and, you know, hey, maybe maybe got some new guys in there, new blood, and figuring it out, right? Well, new blood, really just new point guard. But you could see Coach Gary getting them kind of going at that point. You could also very easily see VMI and UNCG walking in there and getting wins, and Mercer's at one and three and got a lot of question marks going into it. I think when we have this conversation next week, I think we'll know more. Even if Mercer goes one and one, depending on what that looks like in scores, I think we'll have a better feel. I, I think no matter what, after those two games, I think both of our opinions of Mercer is going to be shaped much differently without Alvarez there. And then I think we'll, I think honestly, after those two games, we'll have a good idea of what to expect the rest of the year from them. Sanford is one and two. They got their first SoCon win by tying their best point output in two months a couple of days back against Western Carolina. They just recently got an offensive boost. We haven't talked really at all about Logan Dye. He didn't play the first six weeks of the season. Mid-December returns from a hand injury. He and his uh, long, long brown hair are their third leading scorer right now in his five games back. Quez Glover had his streak of 20-point games broken against Western. It was four in a row, but he's second in the league in scoring behind only Malachi Smith. With Dye, it gets a little interesting, right? Like, he's not someone historically we would have talked about a whole lot in Logan Dye. Like, there is so much talent on that roster that was mismanaged by Bucky McMillan in the past. But you've got Logan Dye there still now, and he all of a sudden seems to be a bit of a difference maker coming back, at least in these first five games since his return from injury. Yeah, he had the weird dunking in practice, broke his finger bad enough that couldn't couldn't go, and then he's he's gone, I guess, the last five, six games, whatever it is. He had a 20-point outburst at Mercer. Looked great, I thought. Of course, everybody looked great against West Carolina the last couple games for Sanford and ETSU, but I guess he is the last holdover with um, Padgett. Or is, uh, or is A.J. McCray there with Padgett? A.J. McCray, three games yeah. played in the start, hasn't played in a while. I have not looked at the roster. Uh, he is he is out for the season. Got it. So he is still there, he, technically. He, he is there. He's out for the season. So those are – but this year the only, I think, holdover from Pageant that is now going to continue to see action is just Logan Dice. So he's t- totally made over the roster has um, Bucky McMillan. They've certainly got the press to go. They've got the nation's largest coaching staff at 37 guys. Wow. And so uh, – they go to Wofford. Obviously, we'll see them on Saturday, have a better idea. But looking at them, it's exactly what you thought it would be. It is press. It is up and down. It is try to shoot threes. It is try to get the game going. Quest Glover, who averaged, I don't know, 3.6 points, I think it was, at Florida for two seasons, has thrown up a billion 20-point games. I think he's got seven 20-point games and has really found a home and a spot, has able to produce but. Sanford's one of those teams that, you know, they can get it going downhill on you. If they get a couple of runs going, that's where they're going to win the game, right? They, they can go 15 minutes of the first half or second half, and you kind of go back and forth, and you break it, and, you you know, you shoot a layup, and they go down there, and you shoot, and they shoot. But what really Sanford does with that is when they're able to put those 8, 12 quick runs on you. And if they can get, obviously – one a game is pretty good, but when they've won, they generally have one in each half where they're able to get a double-digit to nothing run going, and then it's just so difficult in any game really to make those up. So they run a lot of bodies in there still, but not quite like they were last year, and I think that's the biggest difference. And honestly, they've got a lot of transfers. Um, you look at Marshall, I think he's done a nice job. I think he was a Birmingham kid It was at Akron. Watched him last game against Western. He's one that really not a whole lot of people talked about. He's leading the league in rebounding. I knew that. But watching him offensively, 
You look at uh, Cardet Jr., and that's the highest recruit they've had, a top 60 in the nation, a four-star. I think his uncle's on the coaching staff. You put two and two together. So, How does that uh, work? I don't know. But uh, I, I think there's some, some things that Bucky's starting to get some things going. Some shifty business, it sounds like. The question is, are they going to be able to win on the road against a team that's going to clamp them defensively in a Wofford? And Wofford generally takes care of the basketball. So if Sanford's ready to make that jump and for people to take him seriously in the league, I think Wednesday's going to be a big game against the Wofford Terriers. And then they're going to get a pretty good matchup with ETSU Saturday because the Bucks have had a hard time hanging on to the basketball. So I'll be curious to see. Sanford, the next couple weeks, I think, the next couple games, honestly, there's some matchups where I think, even though it's early in the season and a couple losses here or there, like Wofford can clearly has enough time to get back into the race, right? I mean, they could win. I don't think they will, but they could win 14 games from here on out, have 15 wins and have a shot, right? I mean, there's teams that could do it, but I think certainly if you're, if you're a Sanford, you know, I think if you're a Mercer, I think this next week, I think you have to pick up a couple of wins if you're going to have people thinking you're going to get out of that 7-10 game. So 19 players have played for Sanford this year. Two of them are holdovers from the Scott Padgett days. A.J. Stat McCray actually was a freshman last year, so he's not one of them. Brian Smith has only played three minutes. So not someone you would have immediately had popped in your mind. And then the other one is Logan Dye, but I'm not even sure that this guy – and you can go back to his 2019-20 roster page on SanfordSports.com. Clean cut, like looks like just uh, you know all-American dude. And now you look at the guy that's out there dropping double-digit games for Sanford since his return, and people are calling for mullet of the year. I've seen on Twitter for Logan Dye. So it's I'm not sure that's the same guy either. But uh, anyway, you're you're pretty close in terms of the holdovers, which is quite incredible to think that it has taken less than. You know, 24 months to completely flip an entire roster, essentially. And they have the largest roster. they got like 22 guys on the roster. Yes, and 19, again, 19 have played. And um, 37 coaches. That, 37 that, have you added that up? Is that, that's 56. That sounds... A lot of people. It's almost a football team. Okay. Actually, I've played against D3, broadcasted for a team that's played against D3 football teams that have less guys on them than the 56, if that is the true number. I'm not sure if 37 is an exaggeration on the coaching staff or not, but I look at your it, eyes and it, I see it's, it's not that much I, 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 It's not. I'll say that. Uh, they, I think they had legitimately 20. They, when you include uh, the three or four coaches, then you include the special assistant to the head coach, then you look at the scouting, then a player development, then you you want to add in the strength coach, you want to add in the video coordinator, the basketball ops. Then they had a staff manager uh, who was a former basketball coach. So it's not like they, they get, um, you know, like we have Tammy in the office, right? And she handles all the administrative stuff. But that, that's not, this guy's a coach that they put another title on. Then they have, I think, three or four graduate managers. And then 10, I think it was, eight or 10 student managers. And then a couple other positions I didn't understand. So. There's a lot uh, that goes into the old Sanford basketball, and we'll see if that pans out for them on the road uh, coming up on Wednesday against the Wofford Terriers. So they are 1-2 Western Carolina. Again, we already talked about ETSU Western Carolina. We watched segment yes, one. Please we don't make plenty me. there. And then Wofford, now 1-3. Uh, firstly, what were your impressions of them after seeing them on Saturday outside of, wow, B.J. Mack is so much better this season than he was last season, and how did those impressions change? after the close loss last night to UNCG. B.J. Max, the, the extra weight he's lost to make himself a better player uh, is there. I think there's some depth issues still with the Terriers, but it's it's almost the, the Mike Young-type team you would see on how they want to play style-wise. They don't have – and B.J. Mack was incredible, and I think he had 18 – close out that window, but I think he had 18 to back up the 20-point effort against ETSU, against UNCG, so he's playing at a pretty high level and can do some things. I think they just don't have, and I could be wrong, but right now I just don't think they have the guy, and I don't know that Mac being the post, but like I think in the SOCON you need a, a guard with the killer instinct that can put people away, you know. Cam Jackson was great for Wofford, but he wasn't the guy that put you on the back that that carried it to victory, right? There's not many post guys in the league that just says, get on my back, 
I'm going to win you the game of the championship. It's always guard and has been in the Southern Conference. So that's where I think maybe they struggle. You know, Klesman, he's – I don't know. I, I think this is a slightly – and I know they just absolutely hammered ETSU and points off turnovers and rebounding and bucks have to be better rebounding, but I, they just strike me as that they're missing something. And I think it's a quality guard. I mean, you take Fletcher McGee what he did. You look at Storm Murphy, who his first year, you're like, oh, my gosh, this guy. And then as he ended his career, you're like, that guy, right? You just changed how you saw him completely. I think they're missing a guy. And I think because they play hard defensively, because they're able to force turnovers and they are physical, that's the one thing. You know, they're always going to play physical. I think that's going to win them some games, but I think they're not going to be right now a championship contender team because I think they're missing something at the guard position. I will say, to their credit, my one big glaring wonder about them, and I do agree with you, I'm not sure Klesman is that lead guard, that true star they would need him to be to be a conference contender. I will say, though, on the interior, my main issue with them coming into the ETSU game was, okay, you don't have Messiah Jones because he's out for the year with that lower leg injury. You're really, really thin inside. But Isaiah Bigelow had four consecutive double-digit games, including against ETSU. Now he had an off night last night against UNCG. But if he can continue to play like he had those previous four, then that answers that question for me because all of a sudden – you know, you've got Bigelow, you've got uh, Sam Godwin, you know, you have uh, obviously Klesman, Larson in the backcourt, B.J. Mack, of course, with all the weight he's lost, looking like someone that can do a lot. But really in terms of true frontcourt guys, you're going to go in there. I know they list Bigelow as a guard, but he's really more um, of an athletic big. You're going to go him and Godwin, and I don't hate that as much as I thought that I would, seeing how he played against You the brought up last show – the ACL takes you a while to come back from. And as you get going towards the end of the first year, going into the second year, you're stronger, right. right? Well, that's what he had. He missed preseason last year. I think it was in the summer, like July, August, he tore his ACL. So he's coming up on 18 months recovery. And so to your point from a previous show about somebody else, you can see if he continues to get stronger with that, that his numbers could go up and he could be – that guy, but I, I, right now I think they're missing something, and if Bigelow can be that, and I certainly, he would be, right now it's either Klesman or Bigelow, I, I don't have anybody else on the, I mean, it's not that they don't get players that can score on a night, but I mean, you don't think Stump's going to be that guy, I don't I don't know that Safford's going to be that guy, um, Godwin didn't even score last night, um, Corey Tripp's young, trying to figure out, Bigelow's as good a guess as any, and if he continues to get stronger on that knee and gets a little more confident, then he's certainly athletic enough. I, I did enjoy that he pulled either a Brett Favre or a, a Tom Brady or, or one of those situations where Sloan, during a timeout, kind of raised his hands up in the air to try to get somebody's attention, and Bigelow ran by him and high-fived him. And which he's Sloan, you know, he's, he's never really happy about anything, but even he kind of turned and smirked a little bit, like, okay, you got me on that one. And then got off the court. You can tell he wasn't happy about it at first, and then he kind of smirked it. But, I mean, Bigelow's got a little swagger to him as well. And I know Bigelow plays a bit more on the perimeter on the offensive end, but he's their team leader in rebounding, and he can go and, and mix it up. And so I would not dislike the situation they were in as much, again, if he can – continue to be that guy. And it's funny enough, you talk about who I was talking about on the last show when I brought the ACL. It was actually somebody from Wofford, Jackie Carmen. Uh, the Citadel, the only team in the league without a victory yet, bottom of the standings, been pretty healthy across the board. Hayden Brown, Jason Roach, Stephen Clark, and Tyler Moff have all played every game, 12 of the 13 for their other starter, Brent Davis. And my main thought is that with everything Hayden Brown does, preseason player of the year, shooting the three is not one of those things. And I added it up quick. With his 26% from beyond the arc that he's shooting this year, that means he's shooting 62% from inside the arc. I just, I know the system they run. I know that Dugerbacham wants to get everybody outside and taking, you know, 25, 30 footers on every single possession, and they want to, much like Western Carolina and VMI, it seems like 
half the teams in the Southern Conference now want to take 35-43s a game, but and I know you can't revolve an entire system around one guy, even though it's something people have done in the past. I know Dirk Walker won't do that with Hayden Brown, but if they could just stop him from taking any more threes, and they have their issues on the defensive side, of course, right? Like with the pace that they play at, they're going to. And so why I've gleaned onto this one thing with Hayden Brown, who's as good of a player in this league as we have, I'm not sure, but it just seems like a waste to have him sit in camp beyond the arc, like, move him in a couple feet. And I know it would change a lot of the offense, but I think it can still do what you want to do with everyone else and just have Brown still be the integral part that he is, but just I don't like what he's doing. <laughs> Frustrated with it. Well, they've had a little rough spell. They've lost four in a row. When they lost to South Carolina State, that was a little bit of the, the, the eyebrow-raising loss there because they had been really good or competitive or – whatever you want to use, and they've got a talented freshman, Jason Roach, you got Moff back. I mean, they've got some pieces back, but the style of play is they're going to get people fits. They're going to get a couple of wins here and there, but they're going to be who they are. And this was a one-year deal for Coach Bauckham to try to figure out if he can turn it around. And unfortunately, if you're a Coach Bauckham fan, I'm afraid Citadel will be in a different direction at the end of the year. I think that's that. Uh, you thought that about Josh Conklin, so. That's true, but Josh Conklin didn't have one year left on it. They signed a new one-year, a new one-year deal to try to get uh, turned around. I believe they put some stipulations for Coach Bauckham that he had to accomplish, and unless uh, he accomplished it all by beating Pittsburgh in Game One, I'm assuming that's going to be it for him. UNCG and VMI this week, maybe a couple of winnable games, maybe either at home that would go a long way towards shutting your mouth, Jay Sandoz, and getting an extension for Duggarbach. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I know you want him because you wanted to say Digger Bauckham as much. Uh, Digger Lecture. There you go. All right, uh, when we come back, something we haven't done in a while and we love. Bail downs. Right after this timeout, Santa Sackick on the bucket here, Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. One, two, three. Fail. 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 Fail. Sounds much better than New Zealand. Where is it? Do I still have an eye on this? One, two, three, four. 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 Throughout pretty much every week. Well, this is what I was going to ask you. Are you, how far are you back? Okay, okay. (laughs) Now, we actually, okay, so the last time we did one was after the Vanderbilt game. Okay. Which was a Vanderbilt-related one. It was. It was so, so deep into how did Clark Lee screw this up? How did ETSU shut everyone's mouth? The guy said he would drink bleach. Like, he got out of control. Yeah, like, it was incredible. uh, Which we don't encourage doing. No, absolutely not. The hilarity after from all the writers and the fans, it was just pure joy and greatness. And that really didn't catch us up on, and I say we exchange messages on this every week. It's not every week, don't worry. We're not like way back to May and June. I think we're starting in September, but I will give a clue. It is Vanderbilt. First fail. (laughs) At Leland on Twitter on the 27th of September tweeted, quote, confirmed, Vols and Commodores, 7 a.m. on PBS with an alternate stream on HGTV. And you know I won't let this bumper die from WXSF. So Vanderbilt paid $415,000 to have ETSU come into Nashville and beat them by 20? (laughs) Apparently everyone on their campus is not that smart. Go Bucks! Rydell throws one down the sideline. Back shoulder. Perfectly thrown and caught. First down midfield. Bucks didn't bite and Colton Lakes read the play action and sacked Seals for about an 11-12 yard loss. Jay Harrison, the transfer from Buffalo, on the outside, flattened right for a big. 
I figured since we were in late September and that never gets old that I had to revisit not only Leland's tweet, but also Bobby Rader doing excellent things on WXS. The PBS uh, on the... Uh, which is how's out of Knoxville is even better. In mean, case you so don't like the PBS uh, coverage, okay. you've got two options to watch. Check in fail. October 5th, no context college football tweeted the picture of Urban Meyer that made the rounds. And, again, one that I just I don't think at any point in the next X amount of years will ever be tired of talking about. He's in studio with Fox in the graphic. He's walking people through his criteria to examine struggling teams. And his three points are trust issues, dysfunctional environment, and selfishness. Yes. <laughs> Urban talking about himself, whether he knew it or not. Uh, he didn't fly back with the team and was grinding on some blonde girl at the bar early in the season. Allegedly kicked his own kicker, Josh Lambeau. And my favorite called all of his assistants losers and himself a winner before not even making it through a full season and getting fired, which he called devastating, which I'm like, why did you act that way then if you didn't want to be just, devastated? I don't understand. Yeah, he was, you know, he wished he would have worked out a little different. My, my question was, in the photo, his hands are under center, in which his team always takes a shotgun snap. So I was confused by that. But go ahead. Go ahead. Your, your go. Third fail. This one is actually kind of a success that we never talked about because our fourth fail is something you sent right after. But FCS stats with a great one. Wofford's 45-44 overtime loss to the Citadel November 13th was the Terriers' first one-point loss since 1999. They had won 11 consecutive one-point games in those 22 years, proving that literally anything going good for the Terriers over any amount of time, whether it be in this single season or over the last 22 years, Josh Coughlin found a way to ruin it. Give them credit to dig up that stat. Incredible stat. And That's the success, really. <laughs> yes, more than more than anything is the Wofford fell the yet another loss, but the stat of finding that they'd won 11 in a row one-point games, the first one since 99, all that being said, I, we appreciate good research. We, we try to pride ourselves on sometimes digging up something that nobody would think of or finding something or trying to catch it. We'll run into each other's office. Hey, what about this? And do whatever. But you could have did a lot of things before I would have thought about looking up the last one-point loss that somebody got on a rabbit hunt and found. I don't even know how that crosses your mind. Like, there's so many one-point games every single week. And then you look at maybe the last couple of years, and you're like, oh, there's a one-point win. Like, oh, okay, so their record's like one and one in their last two. And then you see maybe the same, you're like, oh, it's another win, like two and one. Never in my mind, I don't think, would it go through my head to go back further and be like, I wonder how many this is. So I just, I don't know. I, I think what happens is, and this is actually what happened with the three-point streak. Mike, yes, please explain that. Okay. That is a great so, so Mike White... Um, who was the basketball contact at that time, was gone for, I think, to Disney World in the middle of the season for his daughter's fifth birthday that they had had planned forever. So during that two-week or week period or whatever, Kevin Brown, who was doing football, filled in for basketball. And he said, hey, what's a couple of notes that, you know, he and Kevin's all in on some stat things. Oh, my gosh. I mean, just We're ridiculous. jumping it head first. His whole yes, body is and, and then once he gets, like, a sniff of, like, I'm going to look this up, like, he goes. So I was like, you know, we've, we've got a lot of games hitting a three, I think. And so he started <laughs> the deal. And so he starts looking, he starts looking, and he goes back. And at least through the first 15 years or so, it's all electronics. It's pretty easy to find. Then he goes through the media guys. Well, then he comes to me and he goes, hey, we're missing like some stats, and I was like, oh, yeah, there was a plane crash, stats blowing up, and he's just staring at me like I told you recently, yeah. and you didn't know it either. So I'm like, so some, so called the SOCON up, got the, you know, game by game, ended up finding all the box scores, and finally he gave up after three days of research when he got to the end, which was the February game, 1987 versus Furman, and then added that up, and then we were like, whoa, where's that rank, and then did a quick search, and Oakland actually had the, List so he calls Oakland University and says, "Hey, we we've just discovered this," and the guy's like, "Why well, need proof? Because I've done all this research on all these teams and did whatever." So we had to send him proof that we had did the the research from. And, and what made him mad was, of course, we were ahead of Oakland, so it bumped him further down. But and since then, I think we started ninth and now currently fifth. So believe it or not, four teams each issue. Now one was Princeton 
and they pass just because of pure volume of games. Princeton doesn't play right. many tournament games. They've played many postseason games. They don't play in a lot of NTEs. So they, just the number of games passed them. But then there's also been teams like Vanderbilt who won a game without hitting one, so they were able to, to fall off the list. But that being said, I see how you can just say, well, what was the last time I offered my one? And you're like, well, no, they won that one. No, they won that one. No, they won. And then you just keep going until it's like, well, where is this? And then you get impressed it's been so long. So I could see – how you started that innocent, like, let's look this up to see if it's, like, recent. And then maybe, because we've done that, like, hey, I wonder the last time was this, and you're like, oh, I'm disappointed. It's, like, sure. three times last year. So, sure, sure. yeah. So, anyways, I can see how it happened. Successful statting by st- stats, FCS or FCS stats, and no one should be surprised by that. But a fail because Josh Cockman found a way to ruin another thing, which relates to our fourth fail. Fourth fail. A more literal fourth fail, and I swear – I'm not just picking on Wofford, even though you tend to do that a lot, and I've kind of hopped on board with it, too, the last couple of months. You just happened to send me, though, back-to-back Wofford things in the middle of November. I, don't, I, did, I just happened to. Okay. You just happened to. The one thing that Josh Coughlin did not ruin for us was the streak that we'll keep on giving for this entire offseason, the Terriers losing streak. FCS stats had this as well. It was the fifth longest streak, winning or losing, at the FCS level as of November 14th. Well, Sam Houston's 20-plus game winning streak ended. Montana State ended. UT Martin ended. Kennesaw State ended. Those were the winning streaks. On the losing side, Wagner cannot end their losing streak now 20 games in a row. Houston Baptist couldn't either now 11 in a row. Their losing streak active this offseason. For Wofford now 10 in a row, the third longest losing streak in FCS. And Josh Conklin still employed, firing everyone he could get his hands on. So say sources, wide receivers coach Freddie Brown, offensive line coach Trey Johnson, tight ends coach B.J. Conley, defensive backs coach Paul Holmes, and linebackers coach Luke Johnson. Allegedly also gone. They are still on the website. And someone, I really just dove really, really far into this. Someone says that they saw Josh Conklin on the road with four coaches, and none of them were the five that I mentioned. So coincidence that those happen to be the coaches that were on the road with them or have all five been fired. I'm not sure. I couldn't find a definitive answer. But that being said, it gets no more faily than third longest losing streak in the country, at least unless you're Houston Baptist or Wagner. Then that's more faily, I guess. But more fails for Josh Conklin. More fails. They also got a tough non-conference schedule next year. I know they got the return game to Kennesaw as one of the non-conference. So, and they've got an FBS game. they got no non-D1s next year, so we'll see if they can break the streak. Josh Conklin says he's changing up the offensive system, which I'm pretty sure is what got him in trouble again? in the first place. <laughs> again, I don't know if that's an again or really, or I don't know what to do there. Uh, so what, what date are we on? Because uh, since we've got to play catch-up. Uh, November get, give 15th, I think. All right, so up to November, yeah. yeah. Okay, all right, so that's four downs. Now let's do what I like to talk about. How great I am and how terrible you are. Shohei Otani has taken the MLB by storm this that. season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a position player. The Brooklyn Nets are whole. They are done. If they were committed, if they put in that work, you'd be in against the conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets are whole watching a playoff with the rest of us. Bill McGee has been added to the Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. JaVale McGee. I still think that was a nice one. Jamari Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. A 6'6", 225-pound three-star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. You know, you could have re my Antonio Brown again. But James, my teammate, he stepped up with the 17 green to our left. The yeah, Robert Hubbard just texted me. I'm playing another golf tournament. I'm not playing with you, Robert. To get from the 18th Ever again. green and into the 17th bucket. Which makes your take that much more hilarious. But he didn't win the Cy Young, and 
how can you not factor in to those pitching stats the fact that he also won the MVP by absolutely raking at the plate? Like, I know they're supposed to be separate awards, but how is what he did at the mound not more impressive? Especially if the numbers are that similar. He should have won the MVP and the Cy Young, and you would have more egg on your face. Like, I have egg on my face every single week when we do bold predictions. I'm just going with, I thought you'd appreciate Robbie Ray and the alliteration there. I do enjoy that, alliteration. And, and that, that, that would be the deciding factor. But I think the ray of light from the Cy Young should have been shown upon Shohei Otani rather than Robbie Ray. I, I just need that segment to be over without his name in it anymore. Please. I need this segment I, to be over. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think you do, guy. Yeah. Because I took a like 15 and a half point underdog and said straight up dub. It's what they do. They're not going to let the Colts in the playoffs, the Jaguars, were going to win the game straight up. I'm almost convinced that you predicting things makes them happen now and not the opposite. Like, you have had some just outlandish takes. Like, Stuff you would have never gotten in years past, and you're just speaking these things into existence, and I don't know what else to chalk it up to. It's like when you say it, it happens. It's just it's just me. I'm on a roll. Jags beat Indy, and not only a 15.5-point dog, I think they ended up winning by 15, like 26 to 11 or something. Uh, the Colts looked hapless. Carson Wentz sucks. We all knew that. But how in the world do you not give it to Jonathan Taylor more than 15 times, the best right back in the league? Indianapolis, you are killing me. You are killing my bold prediction soul. Uh, you did not get Charlie Weber 14 points, eight rebounds in the first game back. I did not get Cooper Cuthbert like 18 yards short of the receiving record. I continue to miss by very narrow margins. I also said the Bucs would sweep the remaining part of their homestand. On the men's basketball side, they lost to Wofford, so I didn't get that. So, again, again, you get a bold prediction. What's the tally? You've got 15. I've got four still. I am four and 38. You are 11 games four back. And 38. I have 11 There's not even 11 weeks left. You're going to have to average making two up per week. You have to get none the rest of the time. I have to get, like, two per week. Yeah. Or just sweep a week. I'm going to have to sweep a week. i, I got to get three. I, I think we should just both just do two a week the rest of the way. That way, your chances are even less. I have a you're you're, you're going to start making, like, ten bold predictions My vote a week. says we stop doing this. <laughs> yeah, that's my vote on every single bold prediction. Cancel. Cancel culture comes to Santos and the sidekick. Canceling bold predictions. I love it. All right. So, t- Thursday, we'll recap the game uh, against Furman. We'll set up the weekend's action for you. ETSU will be at Sanford on the men's side. Finally, women's basketball, we believe, will be taking on Chattanooga Saturday at noon. So we'll talk about all that and more when another edition of Sanderson the Sidekick comes back with you on Thursday. Bring it in right now, Mark.